Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into the Asia-Pacific Perspective, where myself and Brock West of APPerspective.net go over all of the latest news and views from the Asia-Pacific region. And uh, what an interesting start we have to the new year. We could probably be doing this on a daily basis, let alone a monthly basis, but it's always good to have you here talking about these important stories. Uh, Brock West, APPerspective.net, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on again, James. You know, it's always a pleasure. Um, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year's to you and your your closest ones. And um, I remember our, before we spoke on our last episode in early December, we were kind of mulling the idea of perhaps doing a 2014 Asia-Pacific pr- prediction show, a la similar to uh, New World Next Week kind of uh, theme. And um, I'm happy to say that even just by accident that, you know, these three stories that we're going to be covering today are pretty much what I would have uh, gone with anyway, being that, you know, the continued military build-up, uh, the upcoming uh, G20 and the asylum seeker debate and also the Chinese economy. So that's something very important that we're going to keep our eyes on. But we will start today, if that's okay, with the Philippines. And I will take this story uh, from philstar.com. Philippines eyes w- more U.S. warships. The Philippines want to acquire two more Navy ships from the United States to boost its maritime defence capability amid threats from China, Armed Forces Chief General Emmanuel Buista said yesterday. New acquisitions would come under the fresh U.S. military assistance announced by U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry when he visited the Philippines last month. Within the last year, we realised that there is a real threat out there in terms of securing and defending our territory. He said that ideally the country needs about six more frigates to guard its long coastline effectively. In fact, we are bidding now for two frigates. Hopefully we'll be able to acquire them in a couple of years. He said he said he has made maritime domain awareness and protection and protection a key concern in his leadership, James. Now this, uh, I've only been doing this type of work for a few years now and while most of the time it can be difficult to put together all the various pieces of the jigsaw puzzle into a coherent narrative, the most obvious and simple standout point for me is that something is fundamentally wrong with the system we all have to navigate through on a daily basis That is that no matter what happens, there's always money to burn for the military-industrial complex. Now, of course, when the powers that shouldn't be have the ability to create money out of nothing and pass the debt onto generations unborn. Um, it's incredibly easy, and I'm sure this is something that you, you've gone into painstaking detail about in your upcoming documentary about the Federal Reserves. Um, sorry to go off on a bit of a uh, tangent, but I, I just find it incredibly frustrating with these types of stories popping up time and time again, and considering these announcements of more US troops, warships, and offensive hardware has come at the very same time while the people of the Philippines are still recovering from the horrific typhoon and the also more recent floods, it just leaves me a little bit bemused, to be honest. Um, I'm sure some people out there will say it's, it's an appropriate response to this rising threat from China, but at the end of the day, we all know that it's never the political, military, or financial institutions that feel the consequences of their actions. It's everyday people like you and me and the resilient people of the Philippines who constantly get the short end of the stick. Unfortunately, exactly right. And uh, that's very well said. In fact, this story is a perfect microcosm, I think, not only of what's happening in the Asia-Pacific with the so-called pivot, but I think just the machinations of the US-NATO imperial war machine generally. Um, they set up the boogeymen, they set up the system, they get their, their proxies and agents and, uh, and cohorts in the, in the region to, to buy their own hardware from them, uh, making money for the defense contractor cronies, and they get to build up this, this boogeyman which perpetuates the, 
the war on terror and the fear and all of this that that helps to, to hype up the system. So it is just a self-perpetuating system, and uh, and part of the the the, the, hit, the other part of all of this, of course, is uh, Kerry um, and the the U.S promise for greater military assistance to all of the partners in the AP, uh, AP region, which, of course, enables all of this in the first place. So it's just one big crony system in which all of the usual fat cats get to dance on the graves of the, the future victims, who will be the, uh, the average men and women who are sent off to die, and fight and die for these uh, so-called noble causes, which we all know are just total BS. So uh, this is a perfect story, I think, to encapsulate that entire system, let alone what's happening in the Asia-Pacific region right now. Playing a bit of devil's advocate, if I may, James, how do you counter the argument about China's recent uh, provocative actions in terms of the uh, aerial, uh, the air identification zone, and also now the recently announced marine defence identification zone, um, which, as an article posted that I posted to APPerspective.net, brilliantly put out, it just looks like another giant sea grab from the Chinese. I mean, how do you counter that kind of argument? I don't. I, I think mm. that's true. I mean, the Chinese are trying to play this game as well in their own way. Um, I think that neither side in this is blameless, and both sides are trying to play off their own populations in the name of fear-mongering and scaring about the other side in order to try to ing- aggrandize the, the size of their cronies and their friends. So I, I certainly don't forgive um, China their role in all of this any more than I forgive the U.S. and their role in all of this, any more than I forgive the, the governments of any, all the, the um, players in this region. I think all of them are in cohesion in this in this big game which is all about basically keeping the the average people down at the bottom of that pa- power pyramid and so I I certainly don't excuse that I think that there are aggressions taking place on both sides and both sides are, are uh, have a lot of blame to, to share in all of this exactly right and just three quick side notes about the continued military buildup that's going on here in the Asia Pacific region we've currently have the uh, key resolve fall eagle military drills going on on the South Korean Peninsula, which always stands, uh, tends to stir up a bit of tension around that particular region at this time of year. Uh, also, the Chinese have just recently announced their plans to build a second uh, aircraft carrier. And also Japan and Shinzo Abe's government has also recently announced plans to drop its no-war pledge from its constitution. So everywhere you look in the Asia-Pacific region, the, the, uh, the build-up continues, unfortunately. Uh, James, moving quickly to our second story now. And... Uh, We'll turn our attention to my home and native land of Australia and to look into an issue that has for over the last decade at least continues to be uh, incredibly decisive here and that would be the issue of asylum seekers. Uh, And I'll just read from this Asian correspondent article, Rights Group Slams Australia's Treatment of Asylum Seekers. Human Human Rights Watch has condemned past and current Australian governments in its latest annual world report for engaging in scaremongering politics at the expense of the rights of asylum seekers and refugees. The report, released earlier this week, acknowledges that while Australia has a strong record of protecting civic, civil and political rights, the persistent undercutting of refugee protections by successive governments has damaged the country's potential to be a regional leader in human rights. Successive governments have prioritised domestic politics over Australia's international legal obligations to protect the rights of asylum seekers and refugees, many of whom have escaped from appalling situations like Afghanistan and Sri Lanka. James, uh, like we see in almost all of the left-right political paradigms around the world, they constantly need that societal football to kick down the field. And here in Australia, it's asylum seekers. Uh, However, with a relatively new conservative coalition, uh, headed, of course, by Tony Abbott, uh, taking power, we've seen a very swift and calculated move to remove 
virtually all information from the public arena about asylum seekers, um, and this was also pointed out in an article I posted on AP Perspective a few weeks ago, uh, basically the Australian government has come out uh, saying that they will not be speaking about anything that happens with asylum seekers now because it's under this new Operation Sovereign Borders thing, and that falls under national security jurisdiction, of course. Um, so if I may, I'd, however, I'd very like to uh, state a few facts about people seeking asylum here in Australia and hopefully at least dispel some of the myths and lies that really need to be challenged in the public zeitgeist. Uh, fact one, under the 1958 Migration Act, it is not illegal to seek asylum here in Australia, even by boat. Therefore, the term illegals and illegal boat people is misleading and misingenuous. Uh, fact two, an asylum seeker who does not have children receives zero dollars from welfare, dispelling the myth that all refugees, all they do is sit around on welfare and get fat and blah, blah, blah. In reality, actually, it's very opposite with a large section of, of settled refugees going on to start their own small businesses and entre entrepreneurial endeavours. And finally, fact three, the vast majority of asylum seekers are either from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran or Iraq. Now, out of those four countries, two of them we have been directly occupying militarily for the last decade plus, um, which has led to an even further destabilisation of the Middle East, as we've seen. Uh, one, we have been directly supporting the crippling sanctions on, and the other, we simply turn a blind eye as our sugar daddy in the US continues its horrific uh, drone strikes program. So once again, it's the state going around the world, causing all kinds of untold misery and suffering. And when that very same misery and suffering arrives on our shores, we shut the door or send them back to where they came from. Um, James, I know it's a complex issue, but I'd love to hear your thoughts, uh, firstly, on immigration versus national sovereignty. Uh, both have their merits, but I just find it, find it incredibly disturbing that there's an ever-rising number of genuine refugees globally, and countries like Australia's, like Australia's inability and refusal to start cleaning up the mess we've created. Well, that's that's an exceptionally important point. Um, that where where is this coming from? Where is the source of this misery? Because if we want to do anything about the asylum seeking problem, we have to look at the actual root causes of the problem rather than just what's uh, what the kind of consequences of these these causes are. So I think that's an important part of this. Um, in terms of the the immigration versus national sovereignty debate, obviously I have my views from within that system, but it seems to me it's like one of those games where however you play the game, you're going to lose because we have already kind of limited the debate just by engaging in that debate. Um, it's it's like the way that national sovereignty is the obvious way to counteract the international globalism of the of the powers that shouldn't be. Well, what, doesn't that already limit our ideas of what uh, the way the world can even function? And I don't want to cop out here, but obviously as a voluntarist, I don't think that nation states have any, any use, any productive use on this planet whatsoever. Um, we are all human beings, uh, free to voluntarily associate with whoever we want in whatever way we want without any uh, presumed governmental authorities, imaginary government authorities coming in between that those relations. So ultimately, I don't want to play the national sovereignty game at all. I don't want to play national sovereignty versus international globalism. I want to play human beings um, cooperating with other human beings. So if we look at it from that perspective, uh, this type of debate really is just a wedge that really does divide people very effectively. And there will be people who probably hate e both of us for even saying what we've already said just because we've said it and that's uh, that's to the detriment of all of us absolutely and yeah the the human aspect of this uh, issue is definitely one that falls on deaf ears um, especially with our political elite and just you know I, I'm not looking to the heavens for any kind of real solutions from them I'm looking within and looking locally for some real solutions here and I think that if we can all come to that 
more compassionate and rational, uh, at least mindset. You know, I'm not here on a high horse proclaiming to have all the answers. In fact, I don't have any. I just want to start a, a compassionate dialogue about this issue. Uh, James, finally, we'll move on to China and some very interesting developments coming out recently, uh, economics-wise. Um, so I'll just read briefly from this article from Forbes that you sent my way a few days ago, and then I'll throw it to you for your analysis. Uh, headline reads, Mega Default in China Scheduled for January 31st. On Friday, Chinese state media reported that China Credit Trust Company warned investors that they may not be repaid when one of its wealth management products matures on January 31st, the first day of the year of the horse. The Industrial and Commercial Bank of China sold the China Credit Trust product to its customers in an inland Shanxi province. This bank, the world's largest by assets, on Thursday suggested it would not compensate investors, stating in a phone interview with Reuters that a situation completely does not exist in which the ICBC will assume the main responsibility. There should be no mystery why this investment known as the 2010 China Credit uh, Credit, Credit Equals Gold Number 1 Collective Trust product is on the verge of default. China Credit Trust loaned the proceeds from sales of the 3.03 billion yuan uh, product to the unlisted Shanxi Zenfu Energy Group, a coal miner. The coal company pro probably is paying something like 12% for the money because credit equals gold promised a 10% annual return to, in to its investors, more than three times the current bank deposit rates, and China Credit Trust undoubtedly took a hefty cut on the interest. Uh, James, just before I throw it to you for your response, I would like to add another story that I found particularly interesting recently that uh, China is planning on allowing the creation of five new private banks this, this year, which would seem to me like the layman that China is going down the incredibly similar path to the US. Um, is that at all accurate? And what do you see happening with this, the uh, Chinese economic, economic situation in the foreseeable future? Uh, good question. Well, I, I think ultimately the the Chinese economy is – the, the, the crux of the Chinese economy hinges more and more on the banking system. And uh, for the last five years of uh, Chinese economic growth, it has really come from creation of liquidity in the banking system through uh, the, the loosening of credit for, through the Bank of China. And they've tried to tighten that credit a couple of times along the way in the last few years. And every time they try even just a little bit to tighten it, um, there's huge problems that start to develop in the Chinese shadow banking sector that's risen up uh, around this easy credit. So um, we saw that last year with a huge cash crunch problem that happened uh, when they started trying to, to tighten up some of this credit. And we're seeing it uh, potentially happening here with this wealth management product uh, default. And this is a long, complicated economic story filled with lots of jargon. But I guess the basis of this is that these wealth management product products, which are very popular in a lot of Chinese financial institutions these days, are basically just Ponzi schemes, uh, rolling Ponzi schemes that where uh, the money that's taken in from from one investment is used to cover the uh, the, the losses of another, and uh, that that scheme keeps getting perpetuated through each iteration and the the numbers get larger and larger so um these these wealth management products uh, so much of the uh, the chinese uh, investment economy is now hinging on these uh, for for average investors so this uh, this default is or this blooming default is potentially very worry, worrying if only because it is uh, i think part of a trend that could be developing and i'm not necessarily betting the farm that january 31st is going to be the end of the world per se um especially because we now see that the China, Bank of China is stepping in with 
huge injections of liquidity. The uh, the latest uh, uh, figure is uh, 400 billion yuan has been uh, pumped in just this past week um, into the into the banking system to make to basically cover and smooth things over. So although this uh, default might take place and this institution might go under, uh, I think the Chinese banking system is probably not going to go under in the next week or two. And China, just like the Federal Reserve, in fact, even more so, is just relying on the creation of uh, liquidity and money and credit out of nothing in order to fuel the system and to keep it going. And as long as they can get away with that, they will continue to do so. So uh, again, it's just a bubble that's growing and growing and growing. And when it bursts, unfortunately, we're now, of course, in this global society where if it bursts in China, it's going to affect every single person on this planet, uh, especially people in uh, the, the largest trading partners, including the United States. So um, a very worrying situation all around. And again, I think you're right. It is just part of part and parcel of what we saw and have, have seen developing in the U.S. and in Australia and Japan and everywhere else around the world for the last several years. And uh, here it is in China coming home to roost in a big way. A very precarious uh, house of cards indeed. Uh, do you think the new appointment of the, uh, of the Fed chair is going to be a positive or a negative aspect on the Chinese economy in any kind of meaningful way? I don't think it'll be either particularly. I don't see a huge change in course when with Yellen stepping in, although, as I said in a recent New World Next Week episode, I think that the person to keep an eye on would be Stan Fisher, the uh, vice chair of the Fed. I think that's going to be an interesting position, um, uh, and all of his CFR linkages and his uh, former governorship of the Bank of Israel, some interesting ties going on there. So uh, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to be taking a look at that and seeing how it actually affects the board's decisions, but I'm not looking for a huge ch- uh, change in policy policy from the Fed. And they might try to end QE3 this year, but they're going to have to replace it with something else because the markets will go crazy if and when they ever start uh, try to uh, take away the punch bowl from this party. Excellent. Um, James, have you done any recent work uh, particularly relating to the Chinese economy? You know, it's something that me personally, I'm always, I always feel behind the eight ball a little bit regarding. So have you done any recent work or can you direct us anywhere, any, any credible websites that you can advise? Uh, well, I, I, Zero Hedge, I often follow for the, the day-to-day um, stuff. For the bigger picture stuff, it's it's harder and it takes a lot of work. I haven't done a lot specifically on the Chinese economy. I've touched on it in recent interviews. I was on the Power Hour with Joyce Riley, for instance, talking about a lot of this recently. But I haven't done a lot of in-depth work on it. But actually, funny you should mention it, I am just now, as we're talking, just working on the uh, subscriber newsletter for this weekend in which uh, I'm going to delineate the five signs that China is taking over the Earth and what it really means, talking a lot about the, uh, some of the different data points on, on this kind of growing, rising red dragon and, and what, uh, what the red dragon takeover of the world economy actually means and who's really behind it. So people who are interested in that can subscribe to my newsletter for more on that. Uh, more information at corporatereport.com support. Excellent. James, well, as always, a jam-packed episode, and I'm sure 2014 is going to be uh, no different to 2013 with lots of uh, important and interesting developments that I hope all our listeners out there are keeping a close eye on. As always, you can keep uh, up to date with uh, everything Asia-Pacific by visiting apperspective.net and also follow me on Twitter at ap underscore perspective. And also, please check out the uh, uh, fukushimaupdate.com. James and I are both working very diligently there uh, to keep that site ticking over, bringing out the most uh, important and credible information we can about the ongoing crisis uh, in eastern Japan there. Yes, and thank you for all your work on Fukushima Update. It really is uh, being updated on pretty much a daily basis, so I hope people are staying tuned with that. Uh, Brock, thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again next month. See you then, James. Take care, mate.